1: favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgareth. And I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. And this is Tenfold More Wicked. Aha.
0: Yay.
2: It's a
1: crossover of a lifetime. Love it. So
2: excited. Hey, we're so happy to have you here. You are such a talented pro and uh, it's exciting to have you on this not so pro show of ours.
0: (laughs) And it's a a crossover and also it's an inter-network. Yes crossover first of its kind amazing so
1: kate get ready <laughs> i just i joined this network specifically for this moment i think <laughs> to do this crossover nice said so that was it i'll do this for 3 years as long as within that 3 years i can do a crossover <laughs> as long as you create and start a
0: crossover series and i can do it it worked because i'm here <laughs> kate believes in the secret and she's here to talk to you about manifesting your dreams
1: I'm excited to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: We're thrilled to have you. I mean, we're, you know, we, I think we've talked to you about this a lot of how impressed we are that you are a real full-fledged historical true crime writer. And you've had tons of books, amazing books that you've written. um, And you have a new book coming out. Do you want to tell us about that a little bit before we... Go into the story,
1: sure. So, if you've listened to Tenfold More Wicked, the very first season was a, about a man named Edward Ruloff, and he was a um, psychopath, psychopath <laughs> who <laughs> killed several people very close to him, and at the same time, he was this genius. And so, in the podcast, you you hear all about him and how he almost got out of uh, being hanged several times, and, and how how pivotal this case was. There's a moment, though, in that show where he's shackled like Hannibal Lecter to the floor of a prison, and there's a series of men who come in from all different disciplines decide to to basically figure out why he was the way he was, why he was this horrible criminal, but also brilliant at the same time. And so the book is not a rehashing of the season, because people have heard the season. It is really a deep dive into the criminal mind. Yeah. And those moments where he manipulated everybody. Yeah. And what that means today, this was a hundred years before the FBI did the same thing with Ted Bundy and Edmund Kemper and all of these really famous people with psychopathy. So yeah, that comes out in October and there's pre-sales available now and the audiobook also. So it's very exciting. I... You know Edward Ruloff. I've just it's it's been a long journey with him. Uh, he was a, a book idea first, and then a podcast, and now a book. and And I feel like he I'm going to be tethered to this man for the rest of my life.
2: <laughs> Isn't it funny when you Google his name now, your name your name will always pop up
1: for better or for worse. Yeah. Correct.
2: Yes. <laughs> the book's called All That Is Wicked, and so please pre order. That means so much to to us writers. It's a big deal and to book sales. Yeah.
0: All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind. I mean, let's give that title its (laughs) full weight. That is my
1: edit. Michelle Howery (laughs) at Penguin Random House is all her. I am so bad at titles. It is unreal. (laughs) (laughs) It is unreal.
0: Do you have that? subtitle Memorize? Because no. that's
1: quite... <laughs> no. And, and, and I don't for any of my books. That's my third book. And I don't remember. And I don't where People have to tell me where the commas go. I don't think for, for somebody who's been a journalist for as long as I have, I'm a terrible copy editor. I really am. Thank goodness for AutoCorrect. <laughs> I feel yes. like that's such an important thing to tell
2: like people because they're always like I can't write a book I don't know like personally as well I don't know where commas go and I don't know fucking Roman numerals very well it's like
1: but you can still (laughs) write a book that's not your part of the job Roman Roman numerals I don't know How was that? Like, Have you ever had to write Roman numerals? that's no. like a
0: junior high trauma. <laughs> it it, is. That, that's your that's your fear-based mind serving up anything yeah. that, that you will buy. That's like sorry if you if you can't do a Roman numeral list. Yeah,
2: uh, if you can't count from a hundred <laughs> backwards in Roman fucking numerals, standing on your head,
0: then you don't deserve to write. A- then you better <laughs> quit. That you're a fraud.
1: I tell you, I type so much that my handwriting is horrific. Oh, yeah. I, my hand my hand cramps up after about one minute of writing by hand, and I can't remember how to do cursive. My twelve year old <laughs> girls can write cursive better than I have. I feel like I'm recessing. It's really <laughs> horrible.
2: I mean, add it to those things of things you won't need when you're older. You know what yeah. I
1: mean? Like handwriting. Yeah, <laughs>
0: handwriting, handwriting. It's as old as Edward Ruloff himself. It's it's that. <laughs> historical and ancient.
1: I'm trying to get my way out of typing too. Now I'm just going to do all speech recognition and that's it. So I don't really, all I have to do is just lay there in my bed and just speak into the microphone and that's just it. There's nothing else. with your hands, yes. Yeah. Yeah, pet, pet the dog and that's it. <laughs> yep. That's the goal. What that's if the dog <laughs> learns how to type and can take
0: dictation? She's that smart. Then you've got a series of TikTok videos you can post and we're talking about content. <laughs> we're talking about producing content at every possible way, Kate Winkler-Dawson.
1: If you can get somebody on your team to train me to do that, I will absolutely do it. (laughs) TikTok, TikTok. My kids know TikTok. I don't understand it one tiny little bit. I just know I have to watch really silly videos every night at bedtime, just to get them. Yeah. Just yeah. To, to have a talking point with them sometimes. So <laughs> absolutely.
2: You're on, you're in a safe place because none of us right here in this little circle you know ticker
0: understand. talk. No ticker no. talking. Okay. <laughs> well, good. We're in the same boat. I get sent some videos by my niece. My thing is like the video itself is always entertaining, but then it will immediately autoplay right. the yeah. next video, which which nine times out of ten is a late teens, early twenties girl crying into her own camera. And that's, I, it's so upsetting yeah. to me that I just, I'm always like scrambling to get out of the app where I'm just like, please, I just wanted to watch a duck follow a dog around or whatever the original video is.
1: A duck? but well, which one's that?
0: Send me a
2: link to that one. Have you seen the monkey trying to give the duck a bath? That one is like a
1: classic, <laughs> classic. Yeah. Interspecies friends. I, can't, I don't think I could do a TikTok video. I don't. I'm sticking with podcasting. <laughs> That's about the, the end of my yeah. creativity is, is with podcasting.
0: I mean, I think you're covering so much yeah.
1: already. Yeah. Like
0: you write books, the idea that you do anything else like you you also are a professor. Mm-hmm. The idea that you might feel pressure to do literally anything else is kind of funny to me because I...
1: It's less than truly. hilarious for me because I do feel pressure. <laughs> I do feel pressure. I, and I yeah. think part of it is when you have so many ideas in your head. The big key I told my students is when they say, I don't know what I'm, I want to do or what genre I want to be in. And, and I found true crime just because it was... I would take a break from doing other things and watch true crime. And finally, a friend said, why don't you just do this sort of for a living? Mm, And so it doesn't feel like work to me. The unfortunate thing for me is I have so many ideas. I have a little folder that is ideas that it's hard really to keep track of. And I have so many listeners who send me this amazing, all these amazing suggestions for Tenfold that you know, I just have this database I'm never going to be able to get through of stuff. So it's an Mm. an embarrassment of riches is what I would say, which is wonderful, but it also is maddening because I just want to do everything. So
0: And kind of know every story. I always have that feeling when people send a suggestion or George and I say that to each other all the time, where it's like, I've never heard of this. Yeah. Like, how is this possible? Where it's like, right? Because there's a whole bunch of these yeah. stories. There's yeah. a ton.
1: Yeah, there's. it's never ending. And especially where the the in the realm I work in, I have a friend who um, it runs an audio house uh, for our university. And he and I were talking about true crime. And he really prefers things... He wants to cover things from the 1980s up. And I I am 1960s back. The further back, the better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a yeah. twofold season that that could, is from 1766 that I'm trying to keep up with. <laughs> so the older, the better. Yes. And um, so, you know, I just, I think it's because I just don't want to, I don't like dealing with live people. I prefer dead people. Yeah. I really do. And, and it's easier also for these, for my stories, because they are, pretty old. I mean, we're talking about a hundred, many of them are a hundred years uh, or or even older where I get family members who are wonderful, but they aren't so involved that it's just gut-wrenching right. and painful. I just, I stay away from those yes. usually. I have families who understand the story because it's been a really big part of their lives and they can feel the reverberations of what happens. But contemporary stories are uh, too difficult for me. They're They are for braver people than me, for sure.
2: Yeah. It's very raw when it's I mean, even in the even in a couple generations close, like even if you hadn't met the people it happened to, but you know, your parent did, it's like it's so yeah, it's so raw. There is a thing when Karen and I are about to do a story that's like from, you know, there's no way that there's recent generations who who experienced the trauma and knew the people involved. It's just kind of like, okay, we can like relax a yeah. little bit because we're not going to directly you know, stir anyone's emotional pot with this story because it's so old.
1: Yeah. I mean, my buddy said when they did a story that the family of the victims were on top of it, listening to every single episode and giving them feedback. And I was Mm. just saying, oh my gosh, that would be a nightmare for me. I just, I don't think I, it would be really difficult for me to do. So I give a lot of props for people who can do it, but I just, old, old, long dead people, Who have been really, really impacted, you know, and, and, but I get so much emotion out of the families that, that I do have because I do believe in trauma embedded in your DNA. And I believe that things that happened in the past in a lot of families just sort of, you know, continue on and on and on through the generations. It's nice to have some answers and some clarity on some stories. So.
0: Especially since it was only recently, and I mean like maybe even beginning in the like late 80s, 90s, where people have started talking about things and talking about our families not perfect, like that fever cleaver kind of specter that's been hanging over so many families for so long, at least American families, where it's like you're supposed to be perfect, and if you're not, shut yeah. your mouth, mm-hmm. that the idea that that's finally fading away and people can say, hey, I had this fucked up thing happen, and- almost everyone else can go, yes, so did we. Yeah. It was just a different version. But like every everyone has experienced familial trauma and, uh, you know, hardship in some way. Like it's all very relatable. There's just certain ones that are really extreme.
1: And I find what's interesting is with a lot of my stories is when I'll contact family members, you know, I'll go through Ancestry or I'll, I'll track them. I've gotten pretty good at tracking people down. I talked to this woman one time, I emailed her and said, hey, I need to talk to you about your great uncle, great, great uncle. And she said, yeah, let's talk. And I called her and I said, so this is what he did. And she said, that is not what I thought you were talking to me about, she had never heard of the case. She, it just, it, was, it oh. was not ever talked about. There is a generation, and it stops. The story disappears, and nobody knows anything about wow. it. For season two of Tenfold, that was true with the Burke and Hare story. Burke's relatives, uh, the uh, University of Scotland, were able to, to track them down. And Burke's relatives, one of the killer's relatives, said, we knew his niece— and that was it. We had no idea who this guy was. So they really, really would stop any kind of discussion about the story. And so, you know, people have this in their background and and it, sometimes knowing more about it clarifies things. Fascinating. Well, it is
2: true probably a lot of generations um, blamed the family members of the killer or, you know what I mean? Where it's like you, you're you shunned because you have this imperfect person in your family and this murderer and psychopath and it's like somehow you know everyone wants to pretend that they don't have issues in their families as well that maybe aren't as extreme but then the whole family is shunned you know and and so the, the great way to forget about it or not let that happen is to pretend that it doesn't exist
1: yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it gets buried and that's, that's sad. It's understandable, but it's also really sad, mm-hmm. especially because a lot of the cases I deal with were very impactful in their time period. They taught us something. It's things that we can relate to now. Yeah. And to have those things buried and not want to talk about them is understandable on one end. But I also love when I get a hold of family members who say, I, I've been wanting to talk about this because I see this happening now in our family, you know, for better or for worse. And, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of it is I end with, on Tenfold, I end with, you know, what, where has this story fit into the tapestry of your family? Where, does it, where do you see yourself in this story? And a lot of them say it's perseverance, that our family has survived a lot of stuff. It's not just been this, it's been other things. And that's nice to be reminded of sometimes. So I've been grateful for every family I've talked to. It's been wonderful. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing source and a kind of a grounding
0: source for the story itself. Where it's like, yeah. this is real. These are real people. This really happened. This isn't some isn't a story from the past. So, what is your? What would you say your first true crime like experience that made you realize that you were very interested in this as opposed to? something else.
1: You know, I was a, a broadcast journalist for a very, very long time. And I worked for CBS to be CBS in New York. And I worked for ABC News Radio. And then I moved to San Francisco. And I was assigned a story to go live from a place called Modesto, California, which is Central California. And there was a, a representative, U.S. representative there named Gary Condit. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, this name. Course. rings a bell. Maybe you guys have talked about it with Chandra Levy. And I covered that story and that was a really, really difficult story, of course, we know that that he was it sounds like having an affair with her, and he would he was digging in and would not admit to it. He was married, he was a really big name in central California. he was sort of a well known congressman who had been in office for a very long time, and he just wouldn't talk to the police and and just simply said, "I don't acknowledge anything except she was an intern in my office and she went missing and Later on, it was discovered after his career was totally ruined, it was discovered that she had been killed by a serial killer who had buried her in a park where she had gone yeah. jogging. So, you know, a side note to that is me thinking in my head, obviously, it it would be better for you to admit this affair and give this woman's family some closure so they can move on and try to 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 find her. But but the police were just so derailed by by him. He just seemed like such a likely suspect. So I was covering that case
2: yeah.
1: in California, and that's I think that was really interesting to me. I saw the good and the bad. I think of what happens with with crime reporting and with true crime, which is um, the good was I got to know her family, Chandra Levy's family, and I got to really understand their pain and the links that they were going. They were not. Nobody wants to talk about a missing child and they were accepting so many different interviews and they were allowing satellite trucks to park out front. We were parked out front and to go inside. And, and, and so I think that that was great. But the, the negative side is, you know, we had, I worked for a 24 hour news network and, and we were just reporting it 24 hours. I mean, we were there at six in the morning mm-hmm. on a Saturday where, where nothing was happening. And it, it was this insatiable need, this machine that needed to be fed and that's what made it difficult for me. And of course, there, th- this fell into what we now call the missing white woman syndrome, mm-hmm. which was this, you know, beautiful young woman who's missing and supposedly somebody who is, um, not, not a typical victim. And how outside the norm is this? And, and now we know how misguided that can be. But, it was that I think that story really. I was there for a couple months and I put on about twenty pounds because I was staying at the DoubleTree <laughs> and they have those cookies. That do you know? Have you been at that? Uh, yes. Oh I mean, I'm oh not yes. angli- I'm not angling Amazing. for an advertisement from DoubleTree, but I would be happy to do it <laughs> because those chocolate chip cookies <laughs> were the bomb, and I definitely put on some big time weight thanks to that. <laughs> yes. They're very dangerous. So I was that I was impacted multiple ways by living in Modesto, California for a couple of years. So I that really was the beginning for me and and I my mom has been a true crime fanatic for my entire life, as long as I can remember. And my father was a criminal law professor at the University of Texas. And so Uh. it was just sort of this natural thing for me to always be interested in. I just like a good story. And true crime for me has this natural uh, story arc where you it makes sure people are invested from the beginning of who the victim is. Why does this story really matter? Because everybody matters. And, you know, and then there is, the inevitable trial, hopefully if the person's caught, and then somebody changes by the end of the story. There is some sort of a mm-hmm. shift in someone's life by the end of the story. And that's a good story. And I think that's what makes true crime appealing to a lot of people. Like sports. I love sports films yeah. too. So it's the same sort of thing. There's, a, there's something that happens. There's an event that changes people. And, and to me, that's a definition of a good story.
0: at MadeIncookware.com. That's
2: M A D E I N Cookware.com.
0: Goodbye. Wait, so now, Kate, you have a story to tell us I do. today.
1: I do, and it's long and in depth, so get ready. <laughs> I expect very natural, organic gasps from you. Right. <laughs> I love it. We're doing it that we knew when we've done it in the past, we
2: knew the stories, and this time we don't know what you're bringing. No, I said, don't I'm know. Swear. So excited! Yep. You don't know either. No, You're I just don't. Like, know. I'm going to make it up.
1: <laughs> I said, I told your producer. I told the producer, don't tell them. Yes. Please tell them not to Google. I don't want you to Google anything. Yeah, okay. perfect. In the the midpoint of this, I'm going to take an unscientific poll of with just the two of you, and to see what you yes. think, and then we'll see if you were right or wrong or whatever yes. at the end. So
2: okay. Okay, we're playing Clue. I love it. Yes, I love it.
1: So this is a story that comes from uh, my first book, which was called Death in the Air. Oh, yeah. And uh, Death in the Air was set in London in 1952. And I won't get too much into it because I don't want to spoil anything. But the book is, you know, essentially about the great smog of 1952 in London where all of this pollution settled over the city and killed about 12,000 people. Amazing. And mm-hmm. and what the city was was more concerned about was a killer. And who was on the loose, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So here's the story. We'll start kind of from the beginning. It's the story of Timothy Evans. And Timothy Evans has always been, as a as a case, has been held up as a pretty profound example of a wrongful conviction. So I was involved with wrongful convictions because of my dad's clinic. I told you my dad was a law professor at the University of Texas for about 37 years before he died. And I moved down here right at the end of his death. And I had always intended to move from New York back down to Austin, Texas. And before my dad died, he said, I would like you to get involved with the clinic. And he started an actual innocence clinic where they investigate wrongful Mm -hmm. convictions. So my dad was really into... Uh, you know debunking junk, junk science and false confessions so i've i learned my whole life i've just heard all about this stuff what was his name robert dawson his nickname was mad dog which Aww, he was <laughs> mad dog dawson <laughs> I don't know. I always made fun of him. I said, that's you were not a mad dog, but but he was he was he was pretty good in court. So when I've talked about wrongful conviction, my whole life I've heard about the Timothy Evans case, which took place in London. So here's the story, and then we could see where you guys land midway through. So it is 1948, post-war London. The city's been blitzed, and they're in a post-war rebuild because the city's been destroyed. The British government, which is at this point led by Winston Churchill, who was a conservative, is bankrupt, but they're not telling anybody else, which is where the pollution part of my book comes in, because they are are buying dirty coal and distributing dirty, brown, nasty coal to the rest of people in London, and that's what's causing all of this pollution. So London overall is pretty depressed, there are a lot of people who are unemployed. Of course, many people were killed. There are women who have to turn to part-time sex work because their husbands or their boyfriends, the fathers of their children, have been killed. There are men mm-hmm. who have returned with their service revolvers. There's a lot of domestic violence, a lot of misery. And of course, this isn't the case in every part of the city. But... In a place that is now beautiful, Notting Hill, Notting Hill was not a very pleasant place to be in the 1940s, in the late 1940s and 1950s. It was an area where the houses were poorly built. Generally, they were old Victorian houses that were then turned into multiple, multiple flats. And, you know, rooms that used to be pretty lavish were split down the middle and and they shoved as many people as they could into these rooms. Mm. So... In Notting Hill, in 1948, came a Welshman named Timothy Evans. He was 24, and he had just about a year and a half to two years before met a young woman named Burl, and Burl was 19 years old, and they met, and they fell in love very quickly, and they got married very quickly, and she got pregnant, and in 1948, they moved into an old Victorian house, which was right next to this huge coal-fired power plant So, you have to picture this. They're also really close to a tube station. So, Uh there's like soot and dust coming through from the coal plant, and there's uh, the rumble of the train, which was an above-ground train, right next to their flat. This this is (sighs) not—everything's rattling, and these are not well-built buildings to begin with. So, everything's shaking, and it's (laughs) just— It's not aesthetically pleasing at all. And they're a young couple. So he's a lorry driver, which would be truck driver in the U.S. He's a lorry driver. And um, he's always just, Tim Evans has always just had a struggle keeping a job. He drank a lot. He didn't serve in the war, but he did drink a lot. And he, uh, and Burl fought a lot, a lot, a lot. They had some pretty violent fights. And... When Geraldine, the little girl, was born, he seemed to be a pretty good father. And within about six months or so, they're still living there, but there's accusations of infidelity and she gets pregnant and she is not happy about this. And he's not particularly happy either, but he is Catholic and she wants to have an abortion and he says no. And it has been a real problem between the two of them. So the couple down on the ground floor heard so many of their fights and Burl would try to go get a job and they would volunteer to keep the little girl. So people were trying to do their best to help out. So there is a time in 1948 where Timothy Evans decides to go home to Wales and he visits its family and he hangs out with his family and everything seems okay. And then he ends up going to a police station in Wales, where he's from in Cardiff. And he says, I killed my wife and my daughter. They're in Notting Hill. Mm -hmm. And that's it. He gives no explanation, nothing. So the the police in Wales don't know what to do with this. They called the Metropolitan Police at their uh, Notting Hill division. And they say, you guys need to send some officers over to 10 Rillington Place, which has later become a very, very well-known address. And Timothy Evans, they press him, of course, and they say, where is she? And where is the little girl? And he said, I took off uh, one of those plates down the, the sewer hole right in the middle of the street, right in front of my building. I pried open the plate. I dumped their bodies down into the sewer. You'll find them there. So the police scurry over there. It takes three or four men, strong metropolitan police officers to try to get this lid up. And, and they're having a hard time getting the lid up. It's sort of adhered down, probably rust and you know all kinds of stuff. So immediately the police are thinking, can one guy who's not really big actually do this? Could he actually lift the lid by himself, carrying bodies in the middle of the night? And of course he's not giving much of an explanation anyway. So they finally get it open. They look down, nothing. There's no one there. Nothing's, you know, no bodies, nothing. So they go back to him and they say, What happened? And he said, I've changed my mind. I did not do anything, actually. I I did nothing. I don't know where they are. I did nothing. So there are a lot of searches. There are searches, you know, in his flat. They search more down in the sewer. They go into the back garden. And the back garden is a mess. Of course, no indoor plumbing for, for bathrooms. The tenants in this building, it was three floors. There's a middle floor and then the Evans lived in the top floor. And these three floors all shared one washroom, one laboratory, one bathroom. So there's two little buildings in the back. And then a garden that is just wrecked. Just stuff everywhere. People have trashed it. Neighbors probably have dumped stuff in it. So they go and they search the house, the flat, everywhere. They sort of search the garden. And they don't look in the wash house First inexplicably, I have no idea why they decided not to do that, but they didn't. Uh. And they go back and report to the police in Wales. They say, hold him, but we can't find any bodies. So, a day or two goes by and the Notting Hill police get frustrated because they still feel like something's happening. Her mom's worried. Everybody's worried about uh, Burl and Geraldine. So, they say, go back again one more time and they figure out that there was a bit of miscommunication and that somebody should have Search so we see where this is going. Somebody should have gone to the washhouse and they didn't. Yeah. So they walk mm-hmm. in and they find their bodies and they're sort of wrapped up like mummified. And they had been there; it looks like for quite a while, for a week or two. They, she had been missing for a little while, and you know he spent probably about a week in Wales before he went to the police. So they are wrapped up; they're well preserved, both of them, because it's very very cold. It's you know late in the in the winter. Um, and it's very dry, and they've been, you know, wrapped up in kind of clothing and stuff. They could tell that they had both been strangled with a necktie, Mm. okay? There was no sexual assault kit done because they were married, and there was no need for that. It wouldn't prove anything if there were sperm there anyway, from their point of view. And they arrest him, and they drag him back from Wales to London, and he is denying it along the way, he's accusing everybody under the sun. And he says, I didn't do it, I love them. And they start to put him on trial and they start gathering character witnesses and witnesses who have seen things. There's a girlfriend that he's been sleeping with and there are people who on the street saw he and Burl fighting and she was fighting with him too, up in the window, you could see a clear view from the street. She was walloping him, he was hitting her and this was a frequent occurrence. So the downstairs neighbor, who was a war reserve police officer, which is a, a really nice appointment during the war, his job was to go kind of in and out of homes and check in, and warn people and take them to shelters and check and see if anybody died during the Blitz. He was yeah. a character witness because he, he was down on the bottom floor. He could hear, he and his wife could hear everything. And they babysat for Geraldine. So it made sense that he was this character witness too. Um, his family came in and tried to sort of defend him and say that, you know, our son would never do this, that he loved his daughter, he loved his wife, and they had problems and he drank a lot. But, you know, this this is something that he would never do. Nobody believes him and he is convicted and he is sentenced to hang. And he, you know, swings from the gallows. So this is happening in 1949. There's almost no press around this. It's what they called a fish and chips Murder, which is funny. If you've been to London and you go to the street, you know, any of the street fairs and stuff, you can get some fish and chips wrapped in newspaper in it. It was a real basic domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And, And domestic violence was really, really prevalent, as was in that time period, and now, women who are pregnant who are murdered. I was just reading this just for this episode that, I can't remember the statistic, but I think it's something like women who are pregnant are twice as more likely to be murdered as women of the same age who aren't. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But we know that women who are pregnant or have just had given birth are at a much higher risk for mostly domestic violence, it's like it's like one of the top two or three reasons that women who are pregnant die. Uh-huh. So this is, you know, they had a, a really big argument, a constant argument over her getting an abortion. She didn't want another child, and he was Catholic. He said no. So it was it was a lot. There was a lot of evidence against him, and he was hanged. So you know, life kind of goes back to normal to the people at at Ten Rollington Place, but. I want to go back a little bit because this is where the story takes a little bit of a turn. You know, the police bungled this investigation at the very beginning. They were supposed to search the wash house pretty immediately and they didn't. There was a delay, blah, blah, blah. So when they finally get it together and they go to the wash house and they open up the door and they see Burl and Geraldine and they pick them up and they walk their bodies out. They open up this gate and this gate is terrible. It's, everything's falling down. It's a horrible garden, as I said before. And the police, when they open the gate, they don't notice that there's this weird stick holding up the gate. Huh. And upon further examination years later, they find out that that stick was actually a thigh bone. Oh. Whoa, out of left field. And oh. Tim Evans wasn't the one who put it there. Okay. Mm-hmm. He did not know, and Burl did not know, and nobody knew that they were living with a serial killer who had already killed two women <laughs> and buried them in the backyard, it was that neighbor down below on the first floor. He was a man named John Reginald Christie, the army police guy. Yep. War Reserve Police Officer who oh. testified against <gasps> who testified against him. He was the main character witness. And I and then I'll tell you something cuz I was kind of mean and held something back. <laughs> Timothy Evans, <laughs> sorry, I do that a lot. So oh, Timothy yeah. Evans said, "I think John Christie did it. He was oh. my neighbor on the bottom floor. I think he did it. I think he did it." And everybody just thought that was ridiculous because John Christie was this Uh, you know, a, a War Reserve police officer, and he had never really been in trouble that anyone knew. He was married. They didn't have any children. And Christie just said, this guy's terrible. He beats his wife, and it made sense. It all made sense. Yeah, right. So John Christie, of course, has this incredible secret, which is that there are two women buried in his backyard when they are carrying Geraldine and Burl Evans out of the wash house and that leg bone belonged to mural edie and i'll tell you the stories in a little bit but we should go back because here is the unscientific poll with just the two of you okay do we think just at this point from what you know do we think that it's possible that a serial killer could be living in the house and not be the one responsible for killing this man's wife and child. After he recanted, knowing just what you know so far. You mean to say, could a murder, an act of murder, also be there when
0: a murder takes place? And he's not responsible.
1: Two killers at the same time, and they're and they're not working together. Two separate murders, living in a small three three floor <laughs> building in Notting Hill. <laughs> I think at this time and place, when
2: it seems like domestic violence is, and I mean, not that things have changed, but is so prevalent and there's so much trauma in the city because of, you know, what just happened in World War II and everything you've pointed out about her being pregnant again, there's a lot of drinking but the thing is, I don't know how these other women who were in the backyard died. There you go. So
1: were they strangled? Ah, yeah. look at that. Thank you. That's very detective-y of you, yes. Asking you sound like you sound like Paul Holes. This is what Paul Holes would ask me, I think. This kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> but how were the I'm other Paul people? Holes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the ultimate compliment. I was just gonna go, no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'd say right off the bat, with the information I have, I still think this was a domestic okay.
0: murder. Here's what I was going to say. Now I'm tr- I'm going to try to observe as well as Georgia Thank just did, you. and it'll it'll be sad. But <laughs> the one thing I didn't that didn't work for me is if that's the only if this basically back outhouse type of setup is the only place that an entire building of people are using the restroom. How did those bodies not get found? immediately after they were placed there because that's however many, 9, 12, 16 people going in and out of that place and they're not found. So to me, it was just like, it's not a smart quote-unquote hiding place. They couldn't have been there the entire time. Hmm. Somebody else is involved who lives there because they're controlling when and where those bodies are placed.
1: So that- Can I have a- Yeah, go sorry. ahead. No, Georgia, you're good. Georgia's like, can I argue that? I'm just going to let you guys talk for a little bit and then just, just point at me when you're ready. <laughs> will you mute yourself
2: real quick? No. Um, can I will say though, there were two bodies that we know of right now in that backyard and none of those nine or whatever people found it. And also I think that the setup of uh, outhouses back then, there was a- like a board, and then there was like an underneath. So it wasn't like they were just visible.
1: They were secluded, sort of, yes. Right. Yeah.
2: And then also, it is kind of a perfect place because the smell of decomposition could be confused for the smell of an outhouse. Yep. But more than that, they didn't know that there were two bodies in that backyard. And so two more bodies, I feel like, could have gone undetected.
1: Yeah, I think um, the Timothy Evans's argument was that he didn't have a key to that particular that for to that washroom uh, that so the setup of the the house i'm going to need to see a blueprint uh, okay. of this washroom i'm going to i'm going to email <laughs> it so i can now
0: make my argument
1: yeah okay <laughs> so the setup of the the house was that there was a man named uh mr kushner who lived in the middle floor and then there were the Evans, who were on the top floor and then the Christie's, he and his wife were on the bottom floor. So Christie kind of kept a pretty tight control over that wash house and the outhouse too. And people mm. didn't, there was a sink in the, in the outhouse also. So people didn't use the wash house very often. It was more of like a laundry place. But oh, Ms, I see. Mr. Okay. Kushner mm. had been in the hospital for three or four weeks. So he was out of that process. So we're just left with. The Christie's and uh, John Christie did his wife's laundry and you're left with the Evans. So Hmm. there are theories that are befuddling to me that we'll talk about a little bit later about how all that works. But let's get back to George's very astute question about... I know, about <laughs> about how people died. So let's just go back and talk about John Christie in general. He is, um, as on the realm for me of serial killers, he is the creepiest of creepy. Yeah. He's somebody who I think most people would not be surprised if if he were a serial killer. So he was born in Halifax, England in 1899, and he was the sixth of a family of, of women. So he was both mothered and, I think, demeaned at the same time. They were all very, everyone in his life was sort of overpowering to him. His dad was a tyrant. He never said that he was abusive. Reginald, uh, John Reginald Christie, everybody called him Reg, but I like to call him John Christie. Never said that his father was abusive, but it sounded like what we would now categorize as abusive. Then mm-hmm. they would call it Victorian era parenting. So lots of marching for miles and miles and miles and single file and mm. lots of whipping and and that sort of thing. And so Christy had been under someone's thumb his whole life. The first time he saw some relief was at his grandfather's funeral. And it was the first time that he had seen a, a dead body. Now, I don't know if you all have heard, I've read this with a lot of different serial killers, Uh, that their first experience with a a dead body is what triggers some thoughts for them. This was Christie's grandfather who sounded like a pretty terrible person. And I think seeing this man who had terrorized him for a long time laying there defenseless, it really sparked something in him. And I've read the same thing about oh. Dennis Nielsen, who was a serial killer in London in, the, I think, the late 80s. He said the same thing. He saw his grandfather dead, and that was when he really became fascinated with the idea oh. of death. Have you heard that? Sorry, Dennis...
0: Yes, well, I think, because Dennis Nielsen is the one, if I'm not mistaken, who was killing gay men. Right. And what's very strange is that these stories are really parallel. He also lived in the top of like a a three apartment thing. And Georgia, this is the guy that was putting people's bodies, he was boiling them and then putting them down the thing and they had, the plumber came because everything got gummed up. When you first started talking about this, I was like, this is not this, because that was the... Seventies, eighties. Yeah. So, but it's very parallel in that way.
2: I don't remember hearing that ever. And that like, so, about the dead body. You know, it's like suddenly your power is gone. Yeah, they, they this is the only way they can get power, and they realize, oh my god, uh, that's dark.
1: This very strong, you know, uh, this strong, powerful person has been reduced to a lifeless yeah. body, and so this really. Sparked an interest in Christie with with death and having power over somebody who was dead. So Christie wow. through life is never really well liked. He's odd and not fun odd. <laughs> like odd, I <laughs> <Thank odd>. guess. <laughs> like a, yeah, not like you guys. Like an, an odd odd. He. He had a personality where he was very acerbic. He was on a soccer team, football team, and he would try to control things on the pitch all the time. He would argue with the referee. He snitched on people at work. He was just Mm. sort of unpleasant. (laughs) He had no luck with women, which probably isn't a surprise. He Mm -hmm. was um, hmm, impotent. To a point where he would try to sleep with a woman and he earned the nickname Can't Do It Christie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and a couple of other ones wow. that I know you guys would be fine with me saying, but I'm not going to say. Really, he was really, <laughs> he was really gone through the ringer, I think, as a young man. And he really didn't have luck with women. He spoke very quietly, and this didn't really help when he served in World War I right. and he was a victim of mustard gas. Where he lost his voice. So he, so picture this person balding, not really good skin texture. He had really thick glasses. He had this sort of weird stare about him. He had a squeaky voice. He barely spoke over a whisper. So Mm -hmm. with a better personality, he probably would have been just fine. But because he was one of those, you know, meld into the wallpaper kind of people, he just had an unpleasant reputation. Mm -hmm. He was a photographer, though, and he was a pretty good one. And he was an animal lover, and he had a couple of ancient dogs that he doted after. So he finally strikes some luck and he meets Ethel Simpson, who is a woman he courts and they eventually get married. He has a petty crime history. He works for a post office and steals checks. And, you know, he's, he's never really done anything too serious until he leaves Ethel briefly and takes up with a woman who has a child and the child is acting out and Christy doesn't like that. And he gets an argument with this girlfriend and he takes a cricket bat and whacks her in the head with it. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. So he's arrested briefly. And then after he gets out of prison, he reunites with Ethel and and she says, okay, let's get married. And so they end (sighs) up, I know. I mean, I, I think she just waited for him. They tried to have children. They both really wanted children. She wasn't able to, she miscarried and, you know, I think he just, accept, they both accepted that they weren't going to have children and they wanted to live in the city. He was hoping to get a better job. He had a hard time keeping jobs. That was another thing is, you know, he was not the most pleasant person to be around. And he um, he had a hard time keeping jobs. He just wasn't as reliable as he could have been. But he ends up moving into, with Ethel in 1937 to 10 Rollington Place, which was, again, three... Rooms of flats. It was it's an interesting building because it's an old Victorian house. So if you picture that, he's got the ground floor where people are walking in and out of this area. It's supposed to be three floors, but you're walking through his living room to get to you your flat oh. on the second floor or the third floor. Oh, wow! So. <laughs> Christy was physically weak. He complained of just about every ailment you could think of. And I, and I say in the book, there's very few times, I love podcasting because I can show my personality a little bit. And I can't crack many jokes in a serious history nonfiction book. But But yeah. he does complain of a lot of things at the same time, aches and pains and flatulence. And everything happens at the same time for him. So you can imagine that he's just this big of a mess of a person who's just unpleasant all the time. So he ends up, you know, moving into 10 Rillington Place. And he becomes a war reserve police officer, which we talked about. He has affairs with various women who, they're not sex workers, but they're women. He clearly is supplementing their income and they're his girlfriends. Mm -hmm. This happens a couple of times. It's unclear whether Ethel knows about this stuff or not, but he becomes a war reserve police officer and does really well. And so police officers around um, London recognize who he is. When Timothy Evans' trial comes up for murder, he has a certain amount of credibility because of that, because he's got this mm-hmm. great job. So he decides that he wants to woo this woman named Ruth first, who works at a, a musician's factory. And Ruth is um, someone who is one of those women who needed to take some part-time sex work it's unclear whether or not that was the case or whether or not she just wanted to go on a on a date with John Christie. But regardless, with all the men to choose from in London, even though John Christie is not someone I would say is this, you know, ideal charming man, he probably presented as the least offensive of many options. He's probably not going to hurt you. He's kind of wimpy. He doesn't have a strong personality. This is someone who I think you would look at and say, I I could trust him. He's creepy, but I can overpower him. Mm -hmm. So Ruth, she is 21 years old, and she goes back to Christie's flat with him. Ethel goes away to her sister's house often. And when she goes, because it's a long train ride and it's kind of a, a bit of a journey, she stays for a while. So he gets his flat alone for a couple of weeks at a time. Hmm. And she likes to go home often. So he brings Ruth home and they have a drink and she agrees to have sex with him. And so they have sex. And in the middle of it, spontaneously, he has a rope and he takes the rope, which was like a bed linen rope that had just naturally been lying there. He decides that he's going to strangle her. Hmm. So this seems out of the blue, but I'm not sure it really is because he had hired sex workers in the past and had liked some sort of rough play. But generally speaking, with the exception of cracking a woman over the head with a cricket bat, there had not been anything officially in his past to show that he was really violent, very, very violent. And so when he strangles Ruth first, I think it probably surprised him. And, you know, I think he panicked and he didn't really know what to do. So the first thing that he did was he pulled up the floorboards of their master bedroom and he put her body under the floorboards.
0: There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know.
2: It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream
0: cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye.
1: This is where things get really weird when it's intertwined with Timothy Evans. Now remember, this is five years before Timothy Evans even moves into 10 Rollington Place. He says, what to himself, what am I going to do? And then he thinks the most logical place is for him to bury her in the garden in the back. But he wants to be able to transport her body and put the body somewhere in the meantime for just half a day while he can think, where in the garden, what time should I do this? So in the dead of night, he carries her body and he stores her where? (sighs) Where? In the bathhouse. In the, bath mm-hmm. house. the wash house. In the Same place. Wash house. Same place. <laughs> that, and that's his spot. That's his spot. Oh, shit. Okay. So now he's strangled and he puts her there. All right. And how did Burl and, and Geraldine die? Strangulation. Yeah. All right. Here we go. So he, in the middle of the night, buries Ruth first in his garden and he plants plants above her. And the only reason I know this is that the Museum of London had a display, the Crime Museum and they showed uh, Ruth First's spinal cord when they recovered the body, and it had a tree that had grown through the spine wow. and it was like a certain kind of bush. It was a bush, bushy tree. And, you know, they, I was able to identify the flowers. He had planted this and he later said that wow. I, he had planted stuff above her. So he now has gotten away with it. This is the thing that he's thought about is, you know, can he kill a woman? Can he disable her? He's always had problems with women. He's always had problems with impotence. So mm-hmm. any questions so far? Where I always ask my students that, do we have any questions? <laughs> you can raise your hand if you want. No, we're with it. Yeah. My question is, whoa. <laughs> okay. Not technically a question, but that's okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. I don't know questions and I don't know Roman numerals. It's kind of amazing.
1: <laughs> so he has 21-year-old Austrian, she's from Austria, a munitions worker Ruth First in his back garden. So he does something that, We know a lot of serial killers do. He managed to find women victims who are not looked after. So her family's in Austria. He knows that. She doesn't have any family here. She's here to try to make a better life and, you know, to send money back to her family. So nobody's looking for her. And, and her not showing up to work is not a problem because people didn't show up all the time. You know, when you're Mm -hmm. in a, in an era like this, in a post-war city like London, people are flaking all the time. It's just not surprising. So nobody was alarmed. So about a year later, he meets a woman at a a different job. Remember, he's hopping from job to job. He worked for a radio production factory. And in 1944, he meets a woman named Muriel Amelia Eadie. So Muriel was not a sex worker. She, you know, had a full-time job. And she didn't need anything from him. She didn't particularly like him. Like, she didn't want to date him. She had a boyfriend. But, and this is where John Christie is really creative, she had a cough and that cough was brought on by bronchitis from the air pollution that was happening all the time mm-hmm. if you lived in london in the 30s or 40s or 50s and 60s too you were <laughs> subjected to air pollution there that, in overwhelming amounts and a lot of people had bronchitis and you could see it like
2: on the uh, in the air it's like it's like pea soup yeah. right they called it and on the cover of your book there's this incredible photo of this woman just Swimming in this thick pollution. Yeah. I, I had no idea. It's awful.
1: It looks actually similar to what we experienced today because she has this like chiffon wrap across her face to block, right. which, mm-hmm. which is worthless. You're not going to block air right. pollution like that, but, but it's a pretty <laughs> photo and it, and it's something that, yeah. So, so that was everyday life for them. So, um, Muriel constantly had a cough and John Christie said, You know, I have a certificate in first aid. Now, (laughs) that made me chuckle at first. It's apparently a big deal. I did not know it was a big deal. It's a it's a whole, it's not just, you know, taking a couple of hour class and, you know, CPR and that's it. It's pretty intensive. And he has this certificate on his wall and he says, I have a cure for that. So why don't you come back to my house? Of course, his wife was out of town. Mm -hmm. And why don't you come back to my house and I can give you a treatment for that. And she was tired of the coughing. And I don't think that he came off as, creepy all the time. I think he saved up a bunch of charm and, you know, then distributed it appropriately to women. Mm. So he got her back to the house and he offered her a drink and she said no. And he said, "Okay, well, let me tell you about this treatment." And he sat her down in the kitchen. And he said, you know, hold this jar, kind of like the Vicks Vapor Rub that you Mm -hmm. you would inhale and it would really help clear out your lungs, right? Or you would put it on your chest. It was sort of a menthol type of smell. And it had a tube running from it that had sort of a mouthpiece. So he told her, put this mouthpiece over your mouth and breathe this stuff in. And it smelled minty and she started to feel better. What she didn't know was that there was another tube connected to the jar and it went straight to the... Tap the gas tap on the back of his mm. stove. And <laughs> wow. later on, in with this method, he would add a bull clip so that it was really easy. He would have the gas on, it would be cut off, he would release the bull clip. And then all of a sudden, you have carbon monoxide gas going into that jar wow. and it knocked her out. And he <sighs> had a pair of pantyhose and he sexually assaulted and then strangled her and killed her. Mm.
0: Diabolical. So he's basically also improving his, as they do, where like you were saying, he could save up a little bit of his charm where it's like, well, he knew he had to get this thing. So he's going to work as hard as he can. And then he's also going to perfect his MO essentially. Yeah.
1: Well, he, you know, it's so interesting. He made it easy on himself. He had never had manual strangulation. He was never strong, physically strong enough to do that. So he would either use pantyhose or, well, I don't believe he used a necktie in any case, but you could say a necktie, anything that rope, anything that you could use that would help him. He had poor hand grip. I mean, just this man seemed afflicted with everything, which it's also interesting that he didn't want to have a struggle. Right. Like he wanted them to be knocked out. Right. Right. Because he had one with Ruth first. I'm pretty sure. Right. I'm pretty sure she fought back. I mean, he didn't have sure. any. Nobody, of course, could examine him because he wasn't even a suspect right. with his nails or anything. But so he did the same thing. He takes Muriel. He wraps her up. He puts her in the outhouse for a couple of hours in the washroom for a couple of hours at the most. And he digs in the middle of the night. He's digging. And the neighbor asked him, How are you doing? And he said, Cheerio. I mean, digging a grave in his backyard, (laughs) there are walls surrounding the, brick walls surrounding the garden, but they're not tall brick walls. I mean, you could see over and see what he was doing. So he buries Muriel and plants things on top of her and he lives his life for quite a long time. Now, you know, based on what happens between now and the next incident, so between 1944 and the next thing that happens is 1952, What happens, right, that's a big gap. What happens over that time period Is mysterious. We know that he hired a lot of sex workers. We know that it is unlikely he killed other people just because of what happens after this. He has a definite spot where he wants to keep people and he doesn't seem to deviate from things. But I will say that Burl Evans and Geraldine Evans move in with Timothy Evans four years after this happens, three to four years after this happens. So he and his wife are living their lives and a big change happens after Timothy Evans is hanged. And the change is called the Windrush. I was just talking to my students about this. So the Windrush was a boat that brought over people from other colonies, from Caribbean colonies, who had fought in World War II on behalf of the British. And they came over and were invited to come to become, I think, naturalized citizens. And when they came, they Mm -hmm. faced just incredible amounts of racism. Um, But it's the history, partially the history of how London's as a city has such an amazing population of Caribbean people there. So the demographic in Notting Hill changed completely between the time Timothy Evans was executed in 49 to where the fog happens in 52. And instead of an old white man living on the second floor and, you know, a young couple living on the third floor, they are now experiencing an influx of Caribbean workers who are living, and it's something like 10 to 15 in that house in Rillington Place. Mm. Oh, wow. This is maddening for Ethel Christie, his wife, and, you know, John Christie is not particularly thrilled either there are a lot of conflicts with that many people it doesn't matter where they're from you're going to have a lot of trash and you know that people were not respectful of each other's space and, and it just drove the christies crazy so
0: ethel was also the amount of people coming through your living right. room not not to be on john christie's side no. but that's a nightmare of just like you're <laughs> yep. the you're basically the foyer totally. you're living room. And, yeah. and one
1: outhouse washroom Ooh. Ugh. For all of these people. So, it was very, very difficult for the Christies. And they dug in their their heels. They did not want to leave. So, this was their home. And, of course, he's got two bodies in the backyard. He's not going to leave anytime soon. (laughs) He's not going. He's committed. So... John Christie sort of tries to deal with it, but Ethel is getting worse and worse. She is upset. She has really bad arthritis as she ages. She's in her 50s when this happens. And in 1952 comes the fog. That's part of my book. And uh, the fog has shut down the whole city. So essentially, there's so much air pollution in London because it's the most populated city in the world. It's a very small city geographically. Mm And it's at the bottom of a basin, the the Thames River Valley basin. So that when this little this little ant that's called an anticyclone settled over the city, it caught like a like a lid on top of a jar. It caught all this air pollution. And usually <laughs> yeah. these blow out. You know, it's like every time you guys hear that we have like a, a red alert pollution day, it's usually because there's like a there's a a high pressure system that hangs over the city and it traps all the air pollution and then it goes away. There's another little pressure system that pushes it out. That's not what happened. Mm -hmm. For five days, record breaking air pollution was trapped in that city. So all of public transit shut down. Everybody called out sick and (laughs) John Christie is now stuck in the house with his wife, which my friend says is the worst case scenario for any serial killers to be stuck in the house with your wife for five days. (laughs) Yes. So he leaves, he walks to work and he quits. He was at the UK's transit system, one of the departments as sort of a clerk. He resigns for some reason, we don't know why. I think he was planning something. Mm -hmm. So he returns home. He rented like a little photo photo, uh, studio flat kind of thing that he never told Ethel about. He never told Ethel he was Ethel he was gonna quit. He had women come, female models come and he would photograph them in the nude and he would be in the nude and it you know, he, yeah. he was really building up to something. So yeah. three days after the fog, he wakes up in the middle of the night and Ethel is just kind of at her limit, and he looks at her and she just and he decides this is her day. And he <laughs> kills her, he strangles her. Oh, yeah! Oh my God. From the front, too. He straddled her and strangled her from the front. So, he didn't knock her out or do anything. You Ugh, know, they wow. had had problems because there were young women who kind of hung about. He had some money, and he was spreading the money around, and she had tried to shoo all these women away. So, he kills her. He kills his wife, and he has to decide what to do. Because I know this sounds strange, but this is not a big garden, and he's pretty much out of room. Um, he has two bodies back there. His dog has dug up Muriel Edie's skull <gasps> and he took the skull in the middle of the night and dumped it smartly, dumped it in a blitzed out house where there's no way anybody right. was ever going to find it. It was totally oh, right. bombed and and f- flattened out. And then, of course, the dog also dug up Ruth's um, leg bone, her her femur, right. and he used it to prop up this fence. So he takes Ethel's body and he pulls up the floorboards of the parlor and he puts her under there and it's there she stays. He wrapped her up like a mummy. It was early, early, it was December, mid-December, very, very cold. Of course, you have to picture these are not heated apartments except for coal fireplaces. So it was mummified. It was not causing a massive smell immediately, not immediately. He takes a couple of keepsakes, her wedding ring, because he needs to sell it, because he's quit his job. And he takes a snippet of her hair. He keeps trophies. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And he puts her under the floorboard, and he sleeps on top of the floorboard in the parlor to be close to her. So this was, you know, pretty terrifying, I think. Um, Later on, he would blame that she was having a seizure and this is what happened. But, you know, it's pretty clear that he strangled her with, I think it was a pair of pantyhose. So what comes in next is an interview with this man named Lynn Trevelyan, who was wonderful for me. He was 101 when I interviewed him. Oh, my God. You interviewed 101? (laughs) That's amazing. He was great, except for one little thing I'll tell you about in a little bit. (laughs) So he was 101. He was Was 101. (laughs) He was 101. And I had to catch him at a certain time so that he was, you know, alert and everything. And he was great, though. He was one of Winston Churchill's bodyguards, and he was amazing. So this police (laughs) officer is patrolling... Uh, Notting Hill in 1952, and he is just a young cop, and he's on the street, and he sees somebody run out of a bakery with a a tin of, what they said biscuits, but for us would be cookies, a tin of biscuits, (laughs) and this guy is just booking it down the street, and he runs into 10 Rillington Place, Mm. and at 10 Rillington Place, he throws open the door and runs up the stairs, and, and Lynn Trevelyan pursues him and catches him, drags him down the stairs, takes him to Notting Hill, throws him in the jail, and they book him. And out of a courtesy, he decides he wants to go back because he knows John Christie is a War Reserve police officer. And Christie was there at the time, and I'm sure was like, what the what? What's happening? This guy is getting chased down. So he goes back, Trevelyan goes back, he knocks on the door, Christie opens the door and invites him inside. And Mm -mm. they're talking, kind of chatting, as much as John Christie was really able to chat normally with anybody, He was chatting and Trevelyan stops and he says, what's that smell? And Christy (laughs) said, we have Caribbean neighbors and their food food and their cooking is God awful. And that's what that smell is. Okay. And he leaves. Mm -hmm. And later on, because the spoiler alert is Christy, of course, does get arrested Lynn Trevelyan is assigned to watch him because everybody who was arrested at that time was on a suicide watch. And so Trevelyan was assigned to watch him. And Christy walked in and Trevelyan, you know, looked at him and Christy said, you recognize me and, you know, you were in my flat. Trevelyan said, of course, I recognize you. And he said, well, and he got this big smile on his face and he said, I guess you know what that smell was. He said, you were standing right on top of my wife. (sighs) And that's what I mean by next level serial killer gross. I mean, he's gleeful about it. It was really, he was so disconnected from any of his victims, even his wife, who was devoted to him for so long.
0: But to him, it was was like a game he won. Like, he's basically telling this cop, I'm smarter than you. Yeah. Like, I got away with it. Uh, You walked away. You know, that's, It's a classic psychopath move, right?
1: Yeah, and I will tell you that if... And and this is nothing... I don't expect Lynn Trevelyan to have been able to pick up anything from that. But if he had, three more people would have been alive because we still have three more bodies to get through. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And and Trevelyan... You know, Lynn Trevelyan, when I talked to him about it, he just said, I just couldn't even believe that that was what happened. But he didn't recognize it. So, um, anyway. Well, it was... John Christie had the perfect cover.
0: I mean, like, that's what they do, right? right? So it's like, if you want to get away with stuff, it's a great idea to pick a profession or volunteer with something where you basically you can't be questioned. It's the police. These are the most trustworthy people. Yeah. I'm a priest. I, I am a pastor. Right. I'm, I'm going to enter into these places where I am above questioning. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm actually the questioner. Right. So don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Like that idea.
2: All right, so we've all just uh, had, a, had a little meeting and decided that this is going to be, because it must be, because we're so enthralled
1: with this, a two-parter.
0: We're only halfway through the story, yeah. so it's going to have to be a two-parter, right, Kate?
1: <laughs> yes, and good luck trying to cut me down to any amount of time on the story. <laughs> As I said, I've written a whole book That's about this. That's why we love you. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's a perfect cliffhanger. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, so coming up, we can expect three more bodies and John Christie to get away with a lot of stuff. We can also expect a incredible history-making manhunt that overshadows a horrible air pollution disaster that was coming. So uh, we have a trial and a media blitz to look forward to in part two. I love it.
0: Amazing. Tenfold More Wicked, My Favorite Murder, The Crossover with Kate Winkler-Dawson. Bye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production.
2: Our senior producers are Hannah Kyle Crichton and Natalie Wren.
0: Our producer is Alejandra Keck.
2: This episode was engineered and mixed by Andrew Epen.
0: Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com.
2: Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and on Twitter at myfavemurder.
0: Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.